Hello. Welcome to Just to Be Nominated, a podcast about movies that is distributed by Lee Enterprises. The show is hosted by Bruce Miller, an entertainment reporter from multiple decades who is currently the editor of the Sioux City Journal, Jared McNett, a reporter for the Globe Gazette in Mason City, Iowa, and me, Chris Lay, the podcast operations manager for Lee. It's actually a pretty slow weekend for new releases, uh, with only two for us to really highlight for you. But one of them is Black Widow, which is going to break the COVID-induced two-year Marvel Cinematic Universe dry spell that we've been suffering through since Spider-Man Far From Home hit theaters in July 2019. Since there's not much else to chat about, we wrangle ourselves a list of our favorite films of 2021 thus far. And finally, uh, we'll get into some of the latest movie news. You can find links to all the movies that we talk about in the show notes, along with contact info if you want to sound off in our inboxes or Twitter DMs. Let us know what you think in the review section of the show wherever you get your podcasts. Now, here it is. Our show kicks off after this short pause. Well, we got just to be nominated. Uh, we are the three of us. I'm Chris Lay, the podcast guru, podcast operations manager for for Lee Enterprises, podcast guru. Yes, um, and uh, based out of Madison, Wisconsin, and then from the Globe Gazette in Mason City, Iowa, we have Jared McNett, currently fueled by uh, some uh, novelty cream sodas novel what is well we'll get to that in a second Jared McNett from the globe gazette yeah I, I catch myself with that rhyming sometimes when i'm like leaving a message or whatever and uh dr seuss over here we got bruce miller <laughs> at the sioux city journal uh, an editor at the newspaper and a entertainment reporter for multiple decades yeah that's good that's good i go back so far i was on the set of the Dukes of Hazard when it first premiered. How's that for? And you know what? One of the fun things I ever did was the last day of shooting of MASH. That was so fun. Wait, you were on set? Yeah, for the last day of MASH. So you got to see their final rap. Right. But it was not the um, it was not the last episode, which was um, like a movie because they shot that before they shot the last episode. So actually the second to the last episode was the last episode filmed. And it was about burying a time capsule. And they were taking, they had to do it. They did it once and they said, no, we didn't get it. And then they did it a second time. And they said, that's the wrap. That's the end of MASH. And then it was a big party. And you were, you were on hand to witness the whole thing. And they also told us we could take whatever we wanted off the set. What did you get? Well, I was in the shower, so I, because you had to stand in the sets where they were. I see what you're saying. And I was in the shower and all I got was a bar of soap. So somewhere in my vast archives is a bar of soap from the set of MASH. So what did you guys, uh, y'all seen anything lately? Yeah, I went to the Forever Purge and, you know, last week I'd seen um, Black Widow. I've seen a new thing that's coming out in a couple of weeks called Vivo. It's an animated film um, from Lin-Manuel Miranda. He he directed it or he just did the music or? The music and he's a voice. Oh, okay. Is it a Disney thing or? It is not a Disney thing, which is kind of interesting because 
you think he's in the in the Disney house, but this was a Sony one. I didn't know anything about this, but the cast for this, although I'm sure probably not going to see it just because I'm not the biggest animated guy. Uh, yeah, Lin-Manuel, Lin-Manuel Miranda, Zoe Saldana, Michael Rooker, which Michael Rooker being in a kid's movie is really funny to me. Um, and uh, Brian Tyree Henry. Right. And um, Gloria Estefan is, um, she has a big kind of end of the film role. It's cute. He plays like a monkey. A talking, singing monkey starts in Cuba, ends up in Miami, but I can't say anything more because I've been sworn to not talk about it. So this is not reviewing it at all. Under penalty of death in the midst of an embargo. Right. What did you think of the Purge movie? I know that I feel like those aren't those aren't generally up, up your alley. Jared, you saw it, didn't you? Yes, I did. Okay, spill all because I was not a fan we got a purge off. uh for me because i've seen uh all of them or no actually i've never seen the, the first one because it was just a home invasion movie and that one didn't interest me as much but um of the ones i've seen which is the other four uh it's definitely close to my favorite the only one i like from for sure that i like more is the second one which is the purge uh anarchy which is the first one that kind of opened up the world a lot. And then I'd haggle about whether or not this new one, uh, The Forever Purge, beats out the first Purge, which is the, the last one from a couple of years ago. Um, and I think what I dug about this one so much was we get way more purging than ever before, because the whole conceit of it is that uh, basically the Purge night spills over into the ensuing days and weeks, pretty much, and they can't contain it anymore. Um, and then not being able to contain it, like the, the government, the movie, the Founding Fathers Party or whatever it is, um, I kind of found that interesting because I thought it was a good sort of riff on the fact that like super, super like reactionary movements will kind of inevitably eat themselves alive. And that's sort of what you see in the movie is that this like group of people that's very clearly about just like violent uh, repression uh, ends up turning on itself and everything goes to complete and total hell in a handbasket in the movie. Um, that's not easy to make interesting, um, especially not in a horror movie, but the Forever Purge did a pretty good job of that. And again, there's some cool uh, masks and, and stuff. Although I wanted more time with the guy that's on the poster that's like sitting on the red, white, and blue horse. There's not a lot of time with him in the actual movie. With the, with the horns, yeah. Yeah, yeah, just, I really like that guy. Handsome disappears. But what I couldn't figure out is who is the other side? I didn't know who they were purging against because they had this, you know, the two seemingly uncooperative people that kind of had to join forces. Um, there's a rich kind of landowner guy, Chris, if you haven't seen it, who is just kind of a jerk, but it's Josh Lucas, so of course he's a jerk. And um, then there are the people who work for him who are very good and kind and they're immigrants from Mexico, right? And so anyway, these kind of, I don't know what you'd call them, it's like the KKK of the purge come in and start shooting up people on the ranch. And so the, the ranch hands have to help the owners get out of there. And then they're kind of together 
but it isn't like rich versus poor. It isn't white versus minority. So you're not really sure who these bad guys are. It's just them. And they're all wearing a lot of makeup. So maybe it's like, like RuPaul's Drag Race where, you know, somebody's bad, but you're not really sure who it is. You see that I had a problem with that because I really wanted to know what it was they were purging against. And it was just, I think there was one line that says, they're not like us. You should stick to your own kind. And right. what is that? You know what I mean? Yeah, the, there was a little bit of that, especially once they got to like, uh, spoilers, I guess, maybe a little bit, but at a certain point the movie gets to like El Paso and a little bit of the motivation I think pops up a bit more there where like some of the people are using like the forever the forever purge is like an excuse to explicitly target like people who have immigrated from like uh, other countries. But yeah, that, that is one thing they maybe could have fleshed out a little bit more that I think would have been uh, interesting. And then the irony is, is that if you're living in the United States and you're having this problem, you have to kind of try and leave because who knows what's gonna happen. So then they've got to try and get into Mexico or if you live near Canada, you'd have to get in near Canada and they have like three hours to get there. Okay, so they're trying and everything is put in the way and there's a woman having a baby and there's a, they gotta climb a mountain. I didn't realize Maria Von Trapp was in this, but they've got all these things they've gotta do to get there. And then you realize that, okay, there's a little statement here about immigration policies. And I think they, they needed to be a little clearer on what they were targeting. Well, it's what we were talking about last week a little bit with um, horror films hitting things a little bit too broadly a lot of times, you know, where it's it, you can't really be as surgically specific in the things you take down, but it still is a way to kind of get these almost general or vague uh, subversive ideas into the, the pop culture. They want to be very political, but they don't know how to do it because the people that would probably like their film is the very people they're targeting. Mm -hmm. They had a preview too of Halloween. Halloween kills again. And it's got like Jamie Lee Curtis where she's wearing a bad gray wig and she's going, we've got to do it. We've got to try and get this solved. Come on, we're going to kill him. We're going to do it. He's evil. And you think, oh God, this is going to be good. I want like an entire oral history of David Gordon Green's career. David Gordon Green is the director of uh, this Halloween movie that you're talking about, Bruce, and the one that came out a few years ago. Uh, and I mean, he got his start as an indie darling. How many directors have their incredibly low budget indie film distributed by the Criterion Collection like before their second feature is even in the can? Like it's, and then to go from that all the way down to having, having his fingers in Eastbound and Down. Your Highness. Yes. Yeah. Your Highness, which is really, I think the lowest <laughs> mark in his career. Um, oh, yeah. And, you know, just to go to these really broad stoner comedies, but to still have this tremendous ability as a visual storyteller and the uh, screenwriter and yeah i mean and the the first halloween movie he did was excellent so i'm i'm excited to see that that halloween trailer and uh chris they shot it in north carolina he is uh he is from north carolina all the real girls one of one of his earlier films 
was shot in the like the Appalachian foothills, more or less, uh, which is kind of near ish where I went to college. And it feels uh, that's it's a I don't know about a fun movie to revisit because it's got a little bit of a, you know, real sad essence to it. But yeah, and that's that I think is also one of the ones where uh, that was like Danny McBride's first film as well. But this is we're way off track <laughs> in, a, in a good way, in a really good way. I saw Questlove's new documentary that just hit Hulu the other day called Summer of Soul which is all about the 1969 Harlem Cultural Festival, which was a, uh, you know, series of performances that happened in, in the same year that Woodstock, the first Woodstock happened. And uh, everyone has forgotten about it. There is so many of the people that are interviewed for this film also seem to have sort of a, a memory hole aspect to it or uh, Nelson Mandela effect where it's like no one else talks about this like I, I am i crazy that i was at this thing or that i've heard about this or anyway it, it's fantastic yeah among uh, other artists you get to uh, some performances from uh what stevie wonder nina simone who, who else pops up fifth dimension uh manu Dibongo. that's one i definitely want to check out because it sounds like a really good fly in the family stone but it's also you know just captured where black culture was at that really intense turning point of the summer of 1969. And yeah, Questlove does a, a fantastic job of getting out. Of, I mean, you, you only hear Questlove's voice a handful of times. Uh, and yeah, it, uh, fantastic film. So even just in music at that time, that was definitely on the, the precipice of a lot of changes in like uh, traditionally like, uh, black dominated types of music, especially like that was when funk was really starting to come into its own right around then. So yeah, I definitely want to want to check that one out. Perfect time of year for it to come out, and uh, definitely a subject I'm fully uh, interested in. So even though that's that doesn't really qualify as, I mean, it's it's a new release, but it's not uh, something that we're necessarily previewing. Um, Black Widow, excellent transition. That's this week, and um, I liked it. I really did. I thought it was um, a different kind of flavor than some of the other Marvel enterprises. Uh, I liked the idea that it was giving you a backstory on a character that you never knew, really. I mean, I, I am not a hardcore comic book person at all, but I always wondered who she was kind of hanging in the back there. And this filled in the gaps and it made me want to see a little bit more of her. Well, I mean, it is uh, going to be the last that people are going to see of her for a while. She has recently said that she has no, she doesn't have any, any Marvel films on, on her docket coming up for the foreseeable future. And she's pregnant. Yes. So that'll hold her out of the spandex for a while. Yeah. And that's, um, that'll hit Disney plus for 20 some dollars additional it'll be in theaters or you can just wait until i think the middle of october is when it will end up being just normal on the uh, on the service as someone who distinctly remembers having to wait like almost a year between when a movie would come out in theaters and when it would like 
be on like premium cable or like a physical release. It's insane how quickly now stuff just goes from the theater to uh, streaming, if it even goes to the theater at all. Like that, that is definitely not lost on me as someone who remembers the, the before times of that. And the DVD market. They'll throw it out there real quickly too. You know, the one at one point the goal was that you could go see the movie in the theater, buy the DVD when you got out of the, the viewing, and you could take it home and watch it there. That, and everybody thought that was such a strange concept. This will never take hold. All it took was a pandemic to take, let's put this somewhere. Where does all this product go? And it's shifted. Yeah, the pandemic really fast-tracked a lot of the changes that people were seeing just over the horizon and definitely brought them a lot closer as far as networks consolidating with streamers and there being no physical media associated with it you know it's gutted the idea of bonus features (laughs) directors commentaries things like that which are still going to exist in in some capacity for a lot of things but it's going to be a real niche market it's not going to be like early 2000s when you'd get you know four disc you know sets of you know for like black hawk down or something like that where it's you know like like one specific action sequence in, in some movie might get you know a 45 minute long featurette that you know has been carefully edited and produced and whatever else. And we're just not going to get those anymore. They'll end up as premium content on some streaming service. You know, I did see the, the um, Loki Simpsons crossover, whatever that thing is. And I thought, wow, this wasn't much, was it? I was expecting much more, but it gets, it lets the Simpsons kind of send up a lot of the Marvel and Disney things and they'll write little kind of screwy things on the marquees and, and in the spaces. And then they talk about Loki being very similar to Bart Simpson in many ways. It's interesting, but that would be one of those extras you would have seen somewhere. Mischievous. Right. And now they're kind of putting it out as this very special um, episode of whatever, you know, where you've got you've to have the Disney Plus to be able to see it. I mean, Black Widow is clearly the biggest, you know, coming out this weekend. I plan on seeing it in a theater. And I also saw that it is, according to Fandango, apparently brick and mortar theater tickets are selling at a higher rate than they did for uh, the last Spider-Man movie and the last Doctor Strange. So it definitely feels like movies are back, baby. Like that. That's good. And you know what? She's better in a standalone than um, Captain Marvel was. There's more to it to kind of dig into here. And the idea that you could kind of a spy thriller, I think, is a better deal than trying to go back and crack that old Avengers net that they had. Yeah. And a lot of the work that Captain Marvel had to do was laying the track for her character to show up in those last two Avengers movies. Right, right. And this Black Widow movie doesn't have that much baggage attached to it. Well, and uh, that's coming out. And then we have the, uh, the second uh, in a trilogy uh, coming out on, uh, on Netflix too, which uh, I finally watched the uh, first part of the other day, which was uh, Fear Street Part 1, 1994. 
and then the second one is what Fear Street Part Two, 1978, I think is the year in that one. Um, Chris, you watched it last week, right? Because you talked about it on the podcast last week. Yep, I, I watched it finally, and I, I thought it was okay. It was like goofy and kind of charming, and it had some good gore moments in it. But I thought it also kind of broke the uh, mystery science theater rule about not reminding people of better films because um, it's like chock full of references to other horror movies like from that era. Um, which I get to like a certain extent because it's, I think it's kind of partly going for like the whole meta like scream thing, but it doesn't really turn those riffs on an old theme into anything new, which was kind of disappointing, but I'm still probably going to end up watching the second one and the third one. So I guess it did its job in that respect. Yeah. We're recording this on the day before the second one will be out. So all that I've got to go on is kind of rough critical assessments which make it sound like the 1978 one uh is which you know really leans into the you know late 70s slasher stuff uh it's set at a like a summer camp so there's you know teens and sex and all the late 70s slasher stuff that's gonna get it's gonna be uh it's gonna be a lot of a lot of that chum in the water i guess would be the the appropriate way uh to to set that up (laughs) but i'm excited to check it out i thought that the first one was just like you jared i thought it was fine um wasn't trying to rewrite any books uh reinvent the wheel it was perfectly fine i mainly i really liked how the soundtrack really captured what i thought yeah i mean it really was um like whenever you hear like you know costume directors talking about doing like period films it's like you can't just pick clothes that came out that year like you have to go back and you know and get clothes that came out like you know four or five years before because those would have been the clothes that people were wearing and this felt like that where you had songs that were around that area and just before it wasn't necessarily you know the the stuff that was the absolute peak that we have come to remember so yeah, the soundtrack was great. The vibe of, of the first one was great. So at the very least, I feel like tonally they're on the right track to get these eras correct. I mean, as- you know, back in those days, you really didn't know everything that was going on in the world. And if somebody went away, let's say somebody went to Chicago, you know, that'd be a big, big deal for them. And they came back with new clothing that was trendy in Chicago. It was like, what planet did you come from? Because it wouldn't be the same thing in your in your community. Even the songs, because DJs would pick the songs in those days to play on the radio, and it might, might take a while for it to get to your, for us in the Midwest, um, any kind of traction. Now everything happens immediately. Whatever is going on in the coast, we get right away too. So there's no kind of wait for it um, sense. And I, I kind of do miss that. I miss the idea that there's discovery somewhere. It's like in the old days, you could go to a small town and you'd see stores you'd never see before. Now you go to any town and it's all the same stores. There is no originality or, or newness. I think now you have to go to a foreign country to be able to find that, that concept. But it's interesting how we become so homogenized that we're all getting everything. And I do miss waiting for it. I remember um, just dying to get 
the, in those days, VHS or beta tapes of certain movies, and they wouldn't come out for at least six months, if not a year. And you say, oh, I got to see this again. I got to see this again. And you could maybe see it again at a theater. But hell, we had um, E.T. here for two years straight at one theater. E.T. for two years straight. That's all. What are you showing tonight? Uh, we're still showing E.T. It's still going on here. Um, so it, it's a whole different way of consuming. And maybe we become too voracious in our consumption because now would be a good time to go back and look at Jaws. And if you haven't seen it, it is slower than you remember, but it is sure. I watched it on uh, on Fourth of July on Sunday, actually. And didn't you um, think there was a little slowness to it? Uh, no, not really. Actually, the thing that surprised me, I watched it on the Fourth of July. Um, my girlfriend came up from Kansas City for the weekend. She hadn't seen it before, and neither had a coworker uh, from work. And then another friend was over who had seen it before. Um, and I had forgotten how funny like some of the parts in that movie are, especially with um, Richard Dreyfuss. And then also with the uh, one townie uh, that goes like, what? Uh, at one point, like that still makes me laugh uh, every time I've seen it. I, I guess maybe it is a little bit slow until it gets on the boat. And then, man, once they get on the boat, that movie is just perfect. Well, and look at how that was a film that by necessity they had to do cutting. They had to edit in a way that it looked like your detention was greater because their their shark, Bruce, was a bust. Yeah, on the fritz all the time. Yeah, right. And so what can we do to save this thing? And they were all in fear that firing was going to happen real soon. So I, I think there's where you get that ingenuity that really pays off. But I think that's one that would be a good revisit film. If you haven't revisited one, get to Jaws. Big fan. And that's really it. You got slim pickings. Yeah, Black Widow and and the second in a, in a yeah. trilogy of films uh, on Netflix based on R.L. Stein books. That's that's pretty much it. And yeah, so do you, do you think we're going to start to see some other weeks like that coming up because of like just, you know, bottleneck or whatever else. We're going to get a couple other weeks where it's pretty fallow with like what's coming out. Um, I, I think I haven't like mapped out the rest of the year specifically, but yeah, I think we're going to get a bunch of, um, like everything in between. I mean, we, this is the first of four Marvel movies that's coming out before the end of the year. And so I think we're going to have a lot of in between, um, with other big things that I haven't quite like, does top gun know where it's going to land yet does um the new bond movie is that officially kind of on on a schedule yet i think they're all still waiting to see how these things play out in the theaters and how this new delta variant possibly ends up affecting things which is you know fine but I would not be surprised if we end up with a couple of stray weeks like this, where it's just kind of nothing, or it's going to be one big blockbuster that everyone has kind of gotten the hell out of the way of, because it's just going to hoover up all of the interest. They've done that yeah. before. You know, if there's a huge one coming, you're only going to get indies that are going to go up against anything like that because, Hey, 10 theaters are going to have one movie in it in one Cineplex. And that means two screens are available for something else. So, yeah. 
the the worst timing ever and i don't know why this sticks in my brain i guess it just explains a lot about me but one i'll always remember for that uh was in 2003 in consecutive weeks uh like the matrix reloaded came out or no no, no uh, x-men 2 came out and then the next week daddy daycare came out and then the week after that matrix reloaded came out so uh daddy daycare just got like blotted out by like uh x2 and uh matrix reloaded because it didn't understand enough to get out of the way of two gigantic like blockbuster movies those are the kind of films that they don't screen in advance so that nobody can have a review so they have a big opening weekend but they're really bad and that's i think that's a good sign is that if you look for a film that nobody has screened in advance that says it's a dog. And they'll throw it up there on those weekends thinking that, well, we've got to have a film for the family because they're not going to go to this other one. Or as I like to call them, the divorced dads film because the divorced dads have to take their kids to something. And hey, it's just as good as anything else. So daddy daycare, here we're going, kid. A lot of, a lot of guys with mustard stains on their shirts in the, in the movie theater for those. <laughs> And speaking of Chris, hey, <laughs> sorry. Come on. The next thing that we were going to do is look at where we're at for this year and kind of round up each of our top three films for the year, which I don't know what Bruce and Jared have. They don't know what I have. So we'll, we'll see how much overlap there is. In trying to compile this list, I was really at a loss for things that have stuck. There's definitely a, a pretty intense recency bias for like two thirds of, of these movies that, that are on my list. And then there's other movies that I, I know that I saw, I know that I've talked about on this podcast that looking back, I recall hardly anything about already. And I don't know if that's me <laughs> Like like some early onset dementia on my part, or if that's you know the pandemic or or what, but oh well. So um, yeah, so we can just kind of do this uh, round robin. Uh, if one of you guys wants to take the lead, I can start because we have one overlap. I think uh, Chris, and so first one I'll throw out and start talking about, and then let you take is a uh, bad trip. Uh, on my list, uh, directed by uh, Kitao Sakurai with uh, Eric Andre and Laurel Howery. Um, and I've talked a bunch of times before about how much I love Eric Andre and just how aggressive his like style of like cringe and surrealist comedy is. And this movie is like the, the pinnacle of that in some ways. Like it feels like a synthesis of, I don't know, like Borat and Jackass, but then there's uh, musical numbers and maybe even some like grosser gross out moments in this movie than in Jackass or uh, Borat. Like the part in the zoo, I like had me dying laughing when I was watching that, like almost forgetting to breathe, kind of laughing. But then it also made me have to look away for a second too, which is hard to tow or a hard line to tow. But um, Eric Andre is able and capable of doing that. Um, yeah. I, I love that movie. I've seen it multiple times and it made me laugh hysterically every single time. Um, and I'd be remiss if I didn't say shout out to Tiffany Haddish as well, because she has some great bits that like kill it in this movie too. The only thing that I'll really add, I mean, I agree absolutely with everything that you're saying, but what I'll add is that 
this movie, it has all of the, the crazy stunts that, you know, a jackass film might have. Uh, and all of the, the man on the street, unsuspecting bystander, candid camera type thing. And then it actually manages to weave them into a semi-coherent plot. Yeah, the, the plot is stronger than like, I recently watched Bad Grandpa for the first time. The plot in that one is like garbage. Like, yeah. yeah. Or at Action works. Park, the other like big Johnny Knoxville, you know, stunt excuse uh, type thing. But I mean, the fact that they were able to wrangle so much anarchy and then find a way to functionally structure it is, I mean, it's, there's no reason that the film should have ended up standing up as good as it did on its own two feet. Uh, and yeah. And it's also just completely insane and it is very rewatchable. Uh, and yeah. So excellent. Bad trip is on my list as well. Uh, Bruce, you got any, any bad trip yeah, thoughts great. or whatever you're uh, what you got? Uh, yeah, I, yeah. You guys can have that. That's good. <laughs> I'm good without that. That's good. But I bet you might, one of you might have Quiet Place Part 2. No. You didn't? No. Nope. You didn't? Well, I really liked that. I thought that was a great sequel, and it teed it up nicely for another, a third one. And um, I think John Krasinski's coming into his own. I, I really think it's actually maybe better than the first one. So I, I liked it a lot, and I thought that would be one that you guys would have too, but I guess I was wrong. Killian, uh, Killian Murphy was great in that and definite improvement over John Krasinski because like he's definitely shown he's good as an era director with uh, both of the Quiet Place movies but I still don't like him very much as an actor so swapping him out for Killian Murphy was more than okay with me. Well I will throw the next one out there which I don't know if either of you guys have um, but Steven Soderbergh's latest no Sudden Move, his heist movie that I want to offer up a, a mea culpa on. Uh, last week, I made a lot of statements about the film uh, and regarding whether or not it was shot on an iPhone. And because it, it looks exceptionally grainy and it's got this crazy wide angle vibe to it that has, you know, feels like it was maybe shot in there, but he I actually... Uh, did some research after the fact and he used these uh, antique lenses to, to shoot it. So there you go. And I, I still am not quite on board with that, but it does add a, a pretty unique dreamy quality to it. Uh, yeah. And it's just a, a fantastic fun, fun hang of a film that is expertly crafted and visually stunning. And I mean, it's, Soderbergh, a guy who, you know, 90% of, of the, you know, what we're approaching 40 films and like multiple TV series that he's produced over the past 40 years now. So uh, just completely bonkers. I think he has he put out two movies last year and then he's got another movie that's coming out later this year. I mean, yeah, just insane. The quality of his output is so high given the amount of work that he's constantly doing yeah since he like re since he retired he's made like seven movies <laughs> that's a good one yeah but you know what's good about him is that he's trying to learn and do different things 
you look at Michael Bay, everything Michael Bay does is the same thing. And is he learning anything? No, he's adding a new addition onto his house. That's what he's doing. And so at least with, with uh, something like Steven Soderbergh, he's, he's trying new things. It may not work, but at least he's making the attempt. And I like that. He also is able to make the attempt because he's had success. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And he's had success in a way that brings things in under budget on time and ends up turning a tremendous amount of profit. And all of these huge stars are excited to work with him to where, you know, you don't have to pay Julia Roberts her, you know, 25, 30, whatever million dollar it is now, you know, thing. I mean, these guys aren't working for scale, but they're definitely not in it for the money. They just want to hang out on a Steven Soderbergh set. And yeah, Mazel Tov. I mean, he, he, he is one of the best directors out there and will continue to be. So any, any new thing from him, much less something that is, you know, hits your TV on HBO Max in this case is the way to go. Wouldn't you hate to be one of those directors that is like second or third choice to direct something, but you take it because you have to, because you need to pay the rent? Because there are ones out there who are like doing those daddy daycare kind of films where you go, oh God, I would, that is not being a director because there, you know, there is no creativity on your part at best, you know, you can have a good shot or two, but you're not going to re reclaim this one at all. Yeah. You're mostly checking boxes. Yeah. Yeah. You were good. And a lot of times it'll be, you were cheap. You could work cheap. So we like you. So we'll, we'll put you in the next one, but we're not going to give you your Epic at this point. So it's, yeah, it's interesting. I would hate to be one of those people in Hollywood where you're just kind of grinding through. Next one up for me uh, was one from back in late April, if I'm remembering correctly. Um, and that is uh, Nobody, uh, directed by Ilya Nishuler and uh, starring Bob Odenkirk. And with respect to the newer uh, Godzilla versus Kong movie, uh, Nobody's definitely the most fun I've had in a theater since I've been back. Um, it's only 92 minutes, but it's like it's a blitzkrieg of 92 minutes. And it, it definitely does the like Fear Street thing that we were talking about earlier of like remixing some obvious touchstone films in its own genre, but it does it way more adeptly, I think, than um, Fear Street does. And so you get, I think a little bit of the mania of like shoot 'em up was the one I was thinking about most, even more than John Wick in terms of like action stuff. It really reminded me of uh, shoot 'em up with Clive Owen. Um, it has some of that. It has some of the like going nowhere, like suburban white guyness of falling down a little bit. I kept thinking about that when I watched Nobody for some reason. And then there's even a little bit of like the, the Terminator and the way that like nobody kind of advances the story through action instead of just like a lot of expository stuff, which I definitely appreciate because it's an action movie. We don't have time for 10 minute monologue explaining why it is that we got here. Um, I loved it and I've seen that one a couple times too and enjoyed it every single time. Um, and between this and uh, I think you should leave season two dropping this past week, it's a pretty good time for uh, Bob Odenkirk, um, who is in the second season and is one of the funniest sketches so far that I've seen. He owns all the classic cars. 
How is he as a dramatic actor? Do you like him as a dramatic actor? Oh, absolutely. Because I'm, I think I've, I'm sure I've talked about it. I, Breaking Bad is like one of my favorite TV shows ever, and I love Better Call Saul a lot too. And he's done such a great job, like flexing his dramatic chops in, uh, in Better Call Saul in particular. And it's kind of ridiculous. He still hasn't won a, uh, Emmy for an Emmy. Yeah. How does this play though? How does nobody play in terms of fostering that career? Is it going to do it? Um, I think it might because he's uh, like he he gets a good balance of like being uh, pretty charming and funny, which obviously everyone knows he can be funny. I mean, he wrote on SNL for years and is in, uh, you know, Mr. Show, which is still one of the best sketch comedy shows ever. So like he gets to be funny, he gets to be charming and like he actually gets to be uh, a badass. So that's kind of the, the triple threat, I guess. What are you picking, Chris? What's your next one? So, yeah, my my number one. You're already up to number one. Yeah, why did I had bad trip? I had no sudden move. Is it your turn then? Well, then it's mine. Step off the way. Whoa, whoa, whoa! You were the one who pitched it to me. <laughs> well, I didn't realize you're like copying Jared. Let's. I just, only copied him for the one. Let's go with what. Yeah, I thought that would too. Yeah, I like that one, Jared. That was good. Um, you know, I because yeah, I like I'm my stuff is all populist. So there you go. Um, I really liked the Mitchells versus the Machines. I thought that was a great animated film. And I think we're seeing way too many kind of coming of age cartoons right now. A lot of this stuff like Luca. I liked Luca. It had a good look. But I think the Mitchells versus the Machines had a lot of inventiveness that we haven't seen in animation. And there are going to be a lot of lot of animated films coming up toward the end of the year. And I still think it'll stand up. I think it'll hold in there and just little things that they did with like just writing on the screen and pointing out things and making it a little more than just a kid going off to college film um, made it stand out. So Mitchell's versus the machines. I like that one. Uh, Eric Andre, one of the uh, cast members in that one too. He's another one who has a really weird range. I mean, to go from he's done network sitcoms while at the same time, he was doing the Eric Andre show, which is one of the most insane anarchic things to hit television, honestly, since Jackass. Not to, you know, put those guys kind of consistently in, in the same spiritual space, but so I've got one left. I do too. Jared, you've got one left or you're? Yep, one left as well. I'll jump in. My number one is Zola. I just saw that this past weekend. It was my first time back in the theater. And how'd you do? Were you good? In the I theater? did great. Yeah. Empty, empty. Otherwise like popcorn, uh, no popcorn, just had an enormous soda. Okay, good. And you liked it because I liked it because it was a really interesting adaptation of, so you had, like, it's based on a Twitter thread that went viral. Uh, and it's like 140 some tweets. And then that was turned into an article in Rolling Stone, I believe, kind of tracing the fact or fiction of, of the, the Twitter thread. And then the way that it was adapted is really interesting. Uh, and the rhythm of it, the way that the editing and, and the sound, um, both as far as the music, as well as the, the diegetic, you know, things that are going on. There's one scene where they're getting out of a, 
out of a car outside of a, a cheap hotel and there's, you know, two kids dribbling a basketball up on a balcony and the rhythm of them dribbling is, is what drives the scene in this really fascinating way. Uh, yeah. I mean, just visually it is. Yeah. I, I very much enjoyed it. Also the way that it tackled sex work in a, in a way that was completely unjudgmental. It is, the film is about uh, two strippers that one of whom takes the other one on this car trip, some other folks, and it gets very chaotic and very tense and never, it never gets really sour. Like it's, it, it stays a, a fun ride the entire time. Um, so yeah, Zola, my vote for uh, movie of the year so far. I got to find a way to see that one because I've definitely been wanting to, and it is not showing anywhere close by. So I'm going to have to find a way to get to see that one. And then my last pick, which uh, this was something I was asking about uh, earlier in our chat with uh, movies that did come out this year, but like we're already recognized at the uh, Oscars, but they didn't still drop this year. So I didn't want to have all three of my pick for that, but I would have been remiss if I didn't pick one from there. And so I went ahead and uh, this was the actually first movie I saw back in theaters a little while ago now was uh, Judas and the Black Messiah, which uh, Shaka King directed. Uh, and it stars, of course, Daniel Kaluuya, uh, who won an Oscar, Lakeith Stanfield and uh, Jesse Plemons. Um, and I'm still not entirely sure if Daniel Kaluuya should have beaten out Lakeith Stanfield or not for Best Supporting Actor um, at the Oscars, which I guess ultimately just says a lot about how much both of them brought it in the movie. I mean, it's in the title, but the movie really is all about them and, you know, kind of the idea a little bit of living one day uh, as a lion, which you could kind of say is uh, Daniel Kaluuya's Fred Hampton character versus, you know, a thousand years as a lamb sort of thing, which is definitely more the Keith Stanfield. And then, of course, the thread in that movie, too, of just the uh, violent suspiciousness that uh, the justice system has uh, treated with the uh, treated revolutionaries with in the past. Um, I, I haven't rewatched it, but I really, really enjoyed it when I did see it. Uh, the only thing that took me out of it still was the, the Martin Sheen uh, costume. Awful, isn't uh, it? As, yeah. yeah, as Hoover was not good. But I mean, if that's the only thing I can pick apart about the movie, that's, that's not too bad. So, Yeah, I, I like that too, but I did not go back because I figured with the Oscar things, <laughs> you're always, you know, and how long have we lived in that world? where the films don't come out until January. And so you'd say, well, technically we didn't get it until January, so it should be part of this year. But <laughs> the Oscar people see it as part of the, the previous year. So that's kind of a screw job that we get as people who are not living in Los Angeles or New York. But um, I, I would second that one, but I didn't because I didn't go back there. I picked In the Heights. Um, oh, nice. And I liked In the Heights because it, it had a vibe that made me happy. I know that's, that's kind of sad, but um, it was just something I was looking for, I wanted in a movie. It had way too many songs, I'll tell you that right up front. Um, and I do think we're edging into the burnout of Lin-Manuel Miranda because his, his songs are sounding an awful lot alike. If you listen to the, the music in In the Heights, you can see traces of Hamilton in there. And now when you look at Vivo, which I mentioned earlier, there are a lot of things that sound exactly like these two previous things. And he's got Encante, which is coming up in the fall. And that's another one that they all kind of are meshing together into one big, 
I want a nomination for best song. And so I worry about that because I think he's extremely talented, but I don't think they should always go back to the same well for some of these things. He's got to top Hamilton now. That's the, that's the only thing. I mean, he's, he's got to go back to the stage. I, you know, I think I could dine out on Hamilton for the rest of my life. I'm sure that he can, but to go from in the Heights to Hamilton. And I mean, is, is the rest of his career going to be doing, you know, animated voices and things, which I mean, not, I'm not knocking that. It's just when you, when your, your first two Broadway musicals, both, you know, absolutely sweep the Tonys, you know, I mean, you're, you're kind of expected to keep rolling with that and find a way to top it in a way. You know, I think when he did Moana, that was a different sound and he was going in a new direction with that. And then they all kind of started marking him as the voice of Latin America. And let's have him do more of that stuff. And I wish they'd let him try something like really bizarre so that there isn't some kind of salsa beat underneath everything or somebody isn't rapping, you know? Um, he has another show, another Broadway show that he did, was it the lyrics to or the music to called Bring It On. And um, you see hints of that in Hamilton as well where you go, oh my God, is he just like recycling some of this stuff? But we should embrace what he's done that's incredible. And I think Hamilton and In the Heights are two really good credits that um, could carry you for the rest of your life if you had to. Absolutely. Just from a from a creative standpoint, I mean, he's clearly someone who is restless and you know keeps needing to find something for him to pour all of that energy into. And so- it'll be interesting to see how long it takes, you know, for him to find that next thing that really sparks him the way that that Hamilton biography did the first time he read it. Right. Yeah. Have you read a book like that? Not me. Where I go, Oh, I want to do something with this. Uh-uh. <laughs> Not yet. Maybe one day. Someday. It's that RL Stein stuff that you'll read. <laughs> so, yeah. So we have a, a pretty good, Pretty good list. I think we got what In the Heights, Judas and the Black Messiah, Zola, The Mitchells versus the Machines, Nobody, No Sudden Move, Quiet Place 2, and then Jared and I both agreed on Bad Trip. So two votes for that pushes it right to the top. <laughs> I think, no, no, no. <laughs> That's how that works. The winner of best picture with two votes is bad trip for the final little third here. We're going to, we're going to share some, some movie news that we thought was interesting. Anything that's happened in the past week or any, any sort of announcements or trailers or release dates or industry shuffling that's been going on. I'll, uh, I'll go ahead and start. Um, Cause I, I really enjoyed this. It was a pretty uh, quick read. It was a good, uh, one to pick, I thought, and that's uh, an article from uh, from yesterday from uh, Variety entitled uh, Vendetta Director uh, Paul Verhoeven on Sex, His Jesus Fascination, and Hollywood Puritanism. Uh, and so Verhoeven has a new movie out called uh, Vendetta that's uh, at Cannes, and it's about a uh, lesbian affair between nuns in uh, 17th century Italy and is uh, coming out through IFC. And there were a couple of interesting uh, parts in the uh, interview in particular. At one point, um, Verhoeven gets asked um, about like 
new several of his movies having like gay or bisexual characters uh in them and like the interviewer uh brent lang asks him um if like that's like a point he tries to make like goes out of his way to have those kind of relationships in his movies and verhoeven just says he hasn't really made it a point uh that's a part of life and so it should be a part of our dramas um and he goes on to say like why should i ignore that and then the other interesting thing um that kind of gets at something that's been an ongoing topic on of conversation with like film Twitter is studios not making um, erotic dramas anymore. Like those are pretty much dead as a genre. And of course he made uh, Basic Instinct, which is one of the, the peaks of that. Uh, and Verhoeven basically said that like the direct quote he had was, there's been a general shift toward puritanism. I think there's a misunderstanding about sexuality in the US. Sexuality is the most essential element of nature. I'm always amazed people are shocked by sex in movies. And then Verhoeven goes on to talk about he almost made a Crusades movie with Arnold after they did Total Recall, uh, which was pretty enjoyable to read about the what if of that. Um, there's more good stuff in there too, um, but you can read the article at Variety. It's a pretty quick one, but a good one. And that was the the thing that I was most interested by uh, news-wise this week. Nice. I will make sure to throw a, a link to that in the show notes so folks can find that. Very excited to check out some new Verhoeven too. I mean, he got his start in Europe doing kind of, you know, not like TNA stuff, but definitely think things that would be more, more scandalous. I think over here, you can always make a bad film a little better if you throw sex in it. Right. You won't hear any, any arguments against that from me. Right. Just throw a little sex in. It's not as bad as you thought. There you go. There you go. Bruce, what's, uh, what's been, well, the Cannes film festival is going on right now. And the thing that got the biggest buzz was Annette. And this is a musical with Marianne Cotillard and um, Adam Driver. He's a stand-up comedian. She's an opera singer. And they have a baby and how it changes their lives. And that'll be interesting to see how that plays. If it's, it's going to be an Amazon um, film, so you'll get it at some point. But I wonder how that'll, how that'll play here. Yeah. I mean, that's one, I think... We were talking about that movie a little while ago. It, it's it's come it's come up on on this podcast. And speaking about you know sex in movies, there is a, a scene that is definitely getting mentioned a lot that I won't elaborate on here. Uh, but the link in with that one too. There we go. <laughs> yeah, would that be good? But and then here's one that'll really kind of like make go what? The first Harry Potter movie movie came out 20 years ago this fall. 20 years ago isn't that something that doesn't seem that old i think it's it's good to see the the film festivals coming back in person even if you know we'll see how uh how that actually shakes out it sounded like you know they weren't doing a great job of enforcing the masking stuff in the palais uh where all the big you know red carpet things end up screening so it seems like th things are a little lax right now, and that's that's scary as someone who definitely wants the momentum of theaters being open to keep going. So we'll see how it goes. Okay, what's your hot news? My pick came out uh, just the other day. Uh, Universal Movies will stream exclusively on Peacock after leaving theaters. Um. Basically, 
four four months or about 120 days, give or take, after a movie premieres, it's going to hit Peacock for for an exclusive period of time, and feels very similar to the way that HBO definitely opened up with with their uh, HBO Max, which did not have a great hitting the ground running moment. And it took a while, mainly involving a lot of these, these movies, you know, premiering on HBO max to, I think up their, their subscriber numbers. And it seems like NBC has started to do that with Peacock as well, which while the, the film viewer in me has already been very happy to have seen no sudden move on my TV, the day that it came out, the theater lover in me is also seeing how this is going to in some way cannibalize a lot of that. Um, and like we said, it's everything that, that was just over the horizon has now been moved significantly closer as far as streamers consolidating and moving things into people's homes and on their couches, as opposed to in theaters and It'll be interesting to see the push and pull of that, which we, we already started to see some of that last earlier this year with Dune getting announced as hitting HBO at the same time that it was going into theaters and um, the, the filmmaker behind that not being too happy. <laughs> so it's going to be interesting to see, see where things go. And this is just another very likely nail in, in a, in a coffin. Uh, I mean, like theaters are still going to be around in some capacity, but this is definitely moving things closer and closer to them being greatly reduced. So the uh, distinction between uh, TV and movies is increasingly meaningless. <laughs> or I mean, like th- these are things that, that are going to feel like movies, but it's going to be watched on the same thing that, you know, you watch. Bachelorette. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Or you know, too hot to handle or this circle or whatever these other. Yeah. I don't know why both of us immediately went to, you know, reality TV competitions, naked and afraid. There's another one. No, I kind of like that one. So don't go there. That's I like, Oh that no, one. I got, I got nothing against naked and afraid. And I honestly, I got nothing against, you know, the bachelor bachelorette. I could never see myself out in the sticks of some jungle area walking around and then trying to find fire and then eat some snake that you found? No way, that is not happening. So I, do you know what I think it is? Um, we are distracted when we're watching television. We are doing other things. I, I can't tell you when I've just sat and just watched, unless it was because I was, I was doing it for some purposes, but it's always, it's kind of on, it's this noise that's on in the background. And so you need somebody to pull your attention. And that's what, what movie going does is it pulls your attention and makes you pay attention. Yeah, you could look at your phone, but really it makes it special. And I think we don't want to lose that special quality. I don't want to end up where one theater plays ET for a whole year. I don't want that to happen. But I do want to be able to to go to the theater and kind of feel that little rush of excitement. Like, oh my God, it's going to be Top Gun part two. I can hardly wait. This will be fun. We've got to see Maverick. It's going to be good. And you have that kind of thrill, even though you might be disappointed, you get excited about it. And with TV stuff, it's like, oh yeah, okay, that's on this week. Yeah, I guess I'll order a pizza and then yeah, I'll, I'll turn it on. We'll see what happens. 
Yeah, I'm never like even even with movies that are like disappointing when I go and see them in a theater, I'm never like upset that I still went and saw it, even if like the movie itself is a disappointment. Yeah, you get something else out of the experience. If it's even just getting that huge soft drink, it's something different, right? One of the things that I love about going to the theaters the most is that I'm I'm forced to put my phone down. Like there's such a there, there's zero distractions in an ideal, you know, theater going experience. And I think part of that is why, you know, I was saying with a lot of the movies that I've seen over the past, you know, six to, you know, 15 months or whatever, uh, a lot of those movies not really sticking is the fact that I saw them at home where I'm, you know, I've, I've got, you know, Sudoku on my phone and it's just not getting stuck in my head in, in the same way. So, yeah. It's excess, too accessible. Yes, I'm. I'm looking forward to being able to go back to theaters for, for big stuff now. Now that they are, you know, the movies are back, baby. You've got Black Widow. Put it on the list. I got Black Widow. Yeah, and then coming up next week, we will have Space Jam. Pretty sure that's next week, right, Jared? Yeah, yeah I think it is. It yeah. Is. Yep. So Space Jam next week. We got that to look forward to. Welcome to the space jam. That's uh, that's all I got. All I can sing legally. <laughs> yeah, you can't do any more because then we're we're going to have to pay for it. Yep, pay for it. So, will you get all the merch then? That space jam related. I will say, like whatever, uh, like new pair of like LeBron shoes that come out that are related to space jam, I will definitely try to snatch up. So. That'll be the extent, though, of my Space Jam merch. Not me. Would you get anything? You'll get more? No, nah. nothing. Nothing. Okay. They want to send me something. You know, You're open. I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm in the book. You know? <laughs> so. The big box of Space Jam stuff will come next week, right? Yep. Well, on that note, that's, uh, yeah, that's a wrap for, for this week. I don't know. Jared, you want to take us out? Oh man, I don't have anything good uh, for this one. So I will keep it short. It will not be cluttered or uh, nonsensical or uh, Rube Goldbergian where one thing bounces into another. And I will just say, uh, see something good. Go and see something good. Yes. Thank you guys so much. We'll see y'all next week. Perfect. So that is the end of the episode. Next week, we've got Space Jam to look forward to. So make sure that you are subscribed. You can check the show notes for links to where you can stream the movies we talked about, discover older episodes, and find ways to contact Bruce, Jared, and myself as well if you want. The show is produced by myself, Bruce, and Jared, and I'm the one who records and edits it. We hope that you enjoyed the show and are taking good care of yourself out there. As always, thank you so much for listening. <laughs>